Welcome to The Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin, and my guest today is Lynn Alden of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy, one of my favorite guests, definitely a crowd favorite, and today's discussion was fascinating. We really focused on the debt ceiling, but from the standpoint of the impact on the treasury market as the underlying foundation of our financial system and on liquidity, which is the oxygen of our economies. So very interesting discussion today. I learned a ton, as I always do, when I chat with Lynn. We also touched on the trend of de-dollarization. We got into the commodities market, the Bitcoin market, and many, many other things. In addition to Lynn's new book called Broken Money, which is coming out very soon, and I'm very excited about that. As always, if you enjoy my content, I publish a weekly newsletter. It comes out every Sunday. I absolutely love writing it. I focus on the psychology of decision-making for investors. I manage an investment portfolio, but I don't write about managing money. I write about managing my mind, which is the most important tool in any investor's tool belt. So hit that link below this piece of content if you would like to hear from me every Sunday. Here is Lynn Alden. Enjoy. Here I am with Lynn Alden. Lynn, it's great to have you back on the show. Uh, thanks so much for making the time. Happy to be here. Always happy to come on. Okay, so I wanted to focus today's discussion largely on the debt ceiling and this, you know, we could speculate on the aftermath. And the reason I want to do that is because if you were to ask me a month ago, you know, what's the consequence of us reaching another debt ceiling? I was responding, nothing, right? This is an inconsequential non-event because we've done this 78 times in the past and every single time we do, we do what anybody does when they can't pay their debts, they amend, extend and pretend, right? You amend the terms to extend the credit and pretend that everything is just fine. And maybe everything is just fine or maybe it isn't, but that's what I wanna talk with you about today. And honestly, I wanna start with the most basic question, Lynn, what is the debt ceiling and, um, and why do we have it? Sure. It's a good question. So back um, a little over 100 years ago, um, going into like World War I, um, when they issued um, bonds to fund the government, um, if they were, you know, for a period of time, if they were running a deficit and they had to have, you know, either rolling existing debt or, or um, issuing, you know, new debt to fund deficits, um, Congress would basically say, OK, we're going to do this this bond auction for this purpose. Um, and so they had kind of a specific overview of, of what the issuance was actually doing. But eventually, um, especially in World War One and in the aftermath, as as the federal government got larger, the administrative burgeon, uh, uh, like. A burden of trying to like micromanage the, the types of debt issuance for Congress was unworkable. And so instead, they said, okay, the Treasury Department is going to deal with those details. You know, they can handle what duration of bond they want to issue. They can figure out, you know, all the all the nuances of how they want to manage the, the debt. Um, with the caveat that Congress is still going to gain control by saying you can limit issue debt up to this amount. So it's basically gaining control, like maintaining control, but but no longer micromanaging. Uh, and so that's that's basically the process we've had for um, about a century. Um, and, you know, over those 70 plus times of raising the debt ceiling, I mean, most of those are non-controversial because that wasn't really like the tool that was used for budget stuff, because it's not what determined. It's not like a, the debt ceiling debate is setting the budget. You know, they in, in different bills, they set the budget. They determine what we're going to spend money on, what we're going to do. And so this is kind of like a separate thing. 
But in recent years, especially over the past decade and a half, it's become a, a tool that um, a party can use as like a negotiating chip. Say, okay, well, here we have this like, you know, thing that kind of requires both of our support. And so the, the pl political parties can see if they can gain any sort of leverage um, from this event. And so really, this is now certainly in the top two or top three um, debt ceiling disputes. So the long tail of most of them aren't really dramatic. Uh, the one in, I believe, 2011 was pretty dramatic. We've had, we've had, you know, uh, maybe two or three pretty serious ones, and this is now among them. And so the issue is that um, if that were to be hit, uh, you either risk uh, potentially default um, on the treasuries, not because, you know, they can always print the money, but they have these, again, self-imposed kind of restrictions on how they're going to break down control of it, um, or they have to start missing um, some key payments like social security payments or military salaries, things like that, because most of the federal budget is not, you know, we think of like the federal government, we think of all the different functions they do, but that's actually a tiny part of the pie chart of government expenditure. The vast majority of government expenditure falls into the buckets of social security, Medicare and, and military um, and military adjacent things like veterans benefits, homeland security, that kind of stuff. So that's where the vast majority of spending is. And so when you have that debt ceiling, you either start defaulting or you start having to to cut um, spending. And we've been in this period since January where they technically ran into the debt ceiling limit, meaning they couldn't issue net new debt, but then they still had a number of levers that they could pull in order to not actually run into those more severe consequences. Um, the first, the, the biggest one that they can do is that the treasury um, has a cash balance that they hold at the Fed. Uh, the Fed is, you know, like their checking account, they hold their cash balance at the Fed. And so they always have some amount of working capital. Currently, they target to have around half a trillion dollars. Um, so, you know, they have this, like, if you were to say, lose your job, like lose your income sources, and you can't um, uh, issue any more debt, what you'd have to do to maintain your expenses, you'd have to start drawing down your savings. And so essentially, that's what they've been doing since since January. And now we're getting to the point where they're almost out of their cash balance, uh, and they've already used some of the other levers that they can pull. And so now they actually start to hit the crunch time for either it's going to be extended um, or certain payments are going to be missed. Okay. Okay. So to quickly recap, you know, Congress used to micromanage by approving every expense. You know, um, essentially, I'm going to write a check. I need you to authorize it. That became too much to manage. And so we moved to almost more of like a credit card example. Here's your card. You can spend up to X dollars. We don't care what you spend it on. But once you hit that limit, we have to talk. All right. Actually, so it's a little different. They they still um, – all the expenses are still um, authorized by Congress. Um, so all those spending authorizations. What they, what they used to micromanage was the types of debt structures that they would use. Um, to fund those expenditures, or at least the portion that doesn't come from taxes. So they, they micromanage both the spending and uh, how to pay for that spending. Um, and now they still, you know, it's not like it's not like they can just authorize. It's not like the treasury's just given a budget and allowed to spend it. All these authorizations are still done by Congress. Um, but what they, but they, what they gave control to the treasury for, which is how the treasury wants to issue debt to to cover the expenses that Congress has already authorized. Um, so, you know, they've already, they have social security laws, they have military budgets, they have uh, Medicare, uh, they have these other operational budgets, and it's up to the treasury to um, 
you know, manage the incoming tax revenue and the expenditures, and then any kind of leftover, they they determine how much how much debt they have to issue on a given time frame and what kind of instruments they want to use. You know, long duration, short duration tips. Um, you know how how they want to time the auctions. All those details are left up to the treasury. Right. Okay. So that yes, and that is the distinction you mentioned earlier. The debt ceiling discussion is not a budget discussion. Those are very separate things. Thank you for clarifying that. Okay. So once we've uh, exercise the tools we have access to. We've drawn down the treasury general accounts. Maybe it was about half a trillion. It's significantly less than that now because we've been drawing down on that since January. There's some other tools like they can stop reinvesting civilian and soldier retirement holdings. I'm not quite clear on how that functions, but maybe you could spend a second just chatting on that. Eventually, though, we get to the point where we have to extend or default and both of those things could happen in theory, right? We, we could have a short-term temporary default before an extension. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, and so you know, when we talk about defaults, there's obviously different types of defaults. So one kind of default is like, you know, if an emerging market has dollar debt and they just literally run out of dollars and can't pay, that's an actual default and restructuring. Right. Um, whereas, you know, this is more of a self-imposed default. And so they can either have a technical default um, which they had once in the past. There was like a technical issue they had decades ago where they actually had a very brief uh, temporary default. Um, um, or you could have a more permanent default. So obviously the, the base case here um, is, is either last minute deal or a temporary technical default. And the timing is a little bit um, bimodal because um, there's, you know, obviously quarterly tax payments, you know, that a number of large entities do. Um, so, you know, most most people think of, um, you know, their tax payments as once a year, um, as well as, you know, through every paycheck, but it, but businesses um, often pay quarterly. And so there's uh, a lot of tax payments that are due in the middle of June. And so if they were to run out of cash before then, they could default as, as early as early June. Um, should they make it to mid-June, um, then they there's a good chance they make it to early July because then they have that like kind of like temporary you know multi week reprieve, and so um, that's why the estimates for when they run out can range uh, widely. It's because of the timing of that that quarterly payment as well as the unknown magnitude the magnitude of what that quarterly payment will be exactly. And what do you watch to determine the market's confidence in an agreement being reached? And in your April newsletter, you reference the one-month versus the three-month treasury yield as an indicator of market confidence in a debt ceiling agreement being reached. Can you touch on that for a second? Yeah. So one you can look at is credit default swaps. Um, a really easy one to watch uh, is that difference between, say, one year, uh, one month, and three month treasuries. Uh, now, now that we're having the discussion later, um, that's kind of no longer a useful signal because now even the one month treasury uh, is it. I mean, is in the line of fire for a potential default. Whereas before uh, in April when I discussed that, it, it was kind of an interesting market signal because they were willing to aggressively bid for one month um, treasuries because they almost they're almost certain that these are these are going to mature before the, the deadline. Um, and so these have virtually zero chance of default, whereas the three month and later um, treasuries uh, were now kind of like firmly in line where like the, these are going to mature after a potential deadline. Uh, and so there's a premium for getting the one month treasuries. And, you know, again, even, even the holders of those long duration treasuries are still kind of assuming that even if there's a technical default, they will be made whole some days or weeks later as that's reconciled. But, especially for, for financial functions. One is there's like administrative costs of dealing with that. Uh, and two, some of them are held on leverage or some of them have um, 
claims that can be pulled out. Like if you're a fund managing money and you have investors that can pull money out and you hold treasuries and some of those treasuries are defaulted on, unless you're going to get paid back in two weeks and your, your clients want money now, well, that's a problem. Um, if you're using treasuries as collateral for loans uh, and those treasuries just, just became, un, you know, defaulted on uh even if you you know in one hand you can say look give me two weeks i mean they're going to sort this out that's still a problem that you know entities would rather avoid if they could and so there was that temporary premium on on one month um t-bills to tr just avoid that headache for that that particular cycle um and so the the market is taking this one somewhat seriously it's, it's still it's not considering the base case of a technical default but it's it's not completely brushing it off either Okay. And so with that, you're looking at the maturation date of those treasuries one month, they're going to be in the money. We feel pretty confident about that, but three months, we're in a vulnerable part of the calendar, far less confidence in that. Um, yes. And that's how it was back in April, whereas now the whole, the whole spectrum's in the line of fire. It's all, you know, yeah. Okay. Okay. I want to uh, segue into implications on liquidity and um, maybe let's start with the last period leading up to this debt ceiling, different actions the Fed has taken that have had negative or positive impacts on liquidity and what you might expect to occur during and after this process? Yeah, it's a good question because I think that um, there's so much media attention on the debt ceiling itself and the possibility of default, uh, which is, of course, a, it's a newsworthy event. It's also a click, you know, it's really good for clicks and things like that. Um, the the From a macro perspective, um, Beyond whatever you know, last-minute deal or technical default or whatever they do, uh, for me the question is: once they get it resolved, what is the next steps for liquidity? So to answer your other question, if you go back, ever since early 2022, the Federal Reserve has been doing quantitative tightening, where they're reducing their balance sheet uh, and then they're also separately raising rates, and so they're trying to tighten monetary conditions. If we look at the quantitative tightening, what that means is that they let they let some of their existing bonds mature, uh, and then rather than reinvest those as they would, um, they just don't reinvest those, which means that as the, the treasury needs to reissue them, uh, some other buyer has to come in and buy them. And so the Federal Reserve is basically slowly destroying base money um, and reducing their holdings of mortgage-backed securities and treasuries, which means those securities have to be absorbed. Um, by other participants in the market, it's very similar to if they were to sell them, with some minor technical differences because they don't they don't realize like you know a loss or anything like that. They just let them mature, um, and that's been a liquidity drain. And liquidity drains are very correlated with kind of negative asset pricing. Uh, it's not great for markets. Uh, QE is kind of like inflation for financial assets, um, and. But that's been somewhat offset um, over the past six plus months by the Treasury. So, you know, the market did very, very poorly, um, especially in the first half of 2022 uh, and extending into kind of the autumn of 2022. The market did very poorly. That's when you had just the, the Federal Reserve is drawing down the liquidity. And while they continue doing that since then, the Treasury started offsetting them starting around autumn uh, of 2022, especially. And so the Treasury, like I mentioned, has this cash balance. Um, and theirs was above target. They had more cash than usual in their in their um, uh, treasury general account, and we could think of that as almost like a void. They 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 previously issued more bonds than they spent, uh, and so they pulled in capital. They pulled in capital from the banking system and elsewhere, 
and they're storing it in this void that's not really being used for anything. So it actually kind of pulls liquidity out of the market while they grow that cash balance. Okay. Um, now, when they start reducing that cash balance, they're starting to spend it back into the market. They're basically pulling it out of this like liquidity void and putting it back into you know, circulating liquidity. Um, and so as they draw down their cash balance, um, it, it's pro-liquidity. And so for ever since autumn of 2022, they've been uh, roughly offsetting the Federal Reserve's quantitative tightening. They've, they've been putting liquidity into the market about as quickly as the Fed's been removing liquidity from the market. Um, and so liquidity was going down for the first, say, three quarters of 2022. Uh, but ever since then, liquidity has been going sideways. And if you look at the reason that's relevant, and this sounds very jargony, but the reason it's relevant is because so the dollar index peaked in um, autumn of 2022, right okay. when liquidity indicators started going from down to sideways. Yes. Um, the S&P 500 bottomed uh, right at the same time. The treasury market in that autumn period was getting very illiquid. It, it was start you were starting to have like bad tailing auctions the move index was like at like record highs it was a really kind of messy treasury environment and that's also when the uk guilt market broke it, it just outright broke and the, the bank of england had to come in and, and do like emergency qe to save the uk pension system and, and prevent like this like spiral this like liquidity spiral and so that like transition to a flat liquidity environment was relevant for a broad swath of, of assets um and the challenge going forward is that once the debt ceiling is resolved, because now they're now that cash drain from the treasury is pretty much done. They they pretty much you know they spent the last six plus you know maybe nine months offsetting the Federal Reserve, and now they can't do that anymore. And worse than that, if the debt ceiling is resolved and they're able to issue a lot more debt, um, their target long term is to get the treasury cash account back up to half a trillion, so you know five hundred billion dollars roughly that they want to increase. So they want to suck liquidity back out of the market uh, while the Federal Reserve is still sucking liquidity out of the market. And so we risk going from a sideways liquidity environment to a deeply negative liquidity environment unless one of these entities blinks and changes course. So his recent history, we've seen both quantitative tightening, which decreases liquidity and a drawdown of the half a trillion plus from the Treasury general account increased liquidity creating this fat, flat liquidity environment. But just the same as drawing down that treasury general account increases liquidity, rebuilding it is going to decrease liquidity. Liquidity, And now we have both these forces working together. Um, what's the consequence of, uh, so it, you, know, you could say decreases in liquidity uh, tend to harm asset prices, uh, tend to drop GDP a little bit, both of which produce lower tax receipts, therefore increasing the federal deficit. So what's the the puzzle they have to solve here? Because if they need to rebuild the general account, if they need to maintain QT in order to save face and credibility and, and, and whatnot, but this is going to, this will amplify the deficit, will it not? Because both of those things contribute to lower tax receipts, which they need. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty difficult puzzle for them to solve. And so as you pointed out, one is that because the U.S. economy is so financialized, um, tax revenue is highly correlated um, with with asset prices. And I think 
one analyst that covered this particularly well was Luke Groman. Um, he pointed that out in the 90s, there was various tax reform that, uh, you know, changes um, the incentive structure for executive compensation to be more stock oriented. Uh, that was a big driving factor here. Just also in general, when you have very high debt and very high equity valuations, uh, that also becomes uh, very relevant. So basically, if we try to tighten monetary policy, if we try to get back to positive real yields, if we try to do QT and things like that, we start to get sideways or down, you know, equity indices, real estate markets, things like that. And then deficits completely blow out because, you know, expenditures are still there and now tax receipts have gone down. And, we, and we've seen that play out in, in, in you know, in this year of the past, you know, say six plus months, um, deficits have been much larger than a similar six month period from a year ago. Um, and so we've already seen this kind of deficit blow out. And the question becomes, if the Fed's not buying, foreigners are not really buying much either on net. Um, banks, uh, obviously, they have all sorts of liquidity problems now, so they're not buying um, on net. And so the question becomes, who buys? And right now, the answer is retail investors, um, you know, mutual funds, pensions, money managers, kind of like these these non-bank domestic um, buyers, which have a limited balance sheet capacity. Um, and so if the treasury, uh, if, if the liquidity starts going down again, rather than sideways, if they have to issue, let's say a trillion dollars of, of treasuries over a six month period, um, it's a question was, well, where do you get the dollars? Where are you going to suck out dollars to buy those? Um, and there's really only that, there's not that many pools of capital that can absorb that much. Um, we can't really see more um, reserves come out of the banking system because that's already kind of tight liquidity uh, wise. Uh, you know, it's hard to get, say, bankers as much below three trillion in the current, um, you know, liquidity and regulatory environment. Um, one of the uh, big pools of remaining liquidity is the reverse repo facility. And so that one has over $2 trillion worth of liquidity uh, kind of locked inside of it. And really, the only way to probably get that out is to issue a ton of T-bills, right? So again, the, tre the Treasury can determine what, what duration of issuance they want to have. And they have all sorts of considerations there, um, you know, whatever is kind of the cheapest part of the curve to issue debt on. Uh, they also want certain types of durations to be kind of a, a regular cadence, so they don't want to like rapidly change the um, – average issuance of government debt and the timing of auctions. Um, but basically, right now you have an inverted yield curve. So the T-bills are the most expensive uh, way to finance the debt. The long duration is actually the, the cheapest way. The problem is that um, in order to get money out of the reverse repos, the treasury would probably have to issue a ton of T-bills. So they'd have to issue a ton of debt at the most expensive part of the yield curve, um, which would be the best for liquidity, but the worst for, say, government interest expense. And they could, they could I mean, they could issue up to say two trillion dollars worth of just T bills and probably suck that out of reverse repos without breaking stuff, uh, at least in the near term. On the other hand, if they try to issue more coupons, uh, that's probably not that's not going to come out of reverse repos, and so that probably strains banking sector liquidity all over again. And you probably started to get messy auctions, uh, illiquid treasury markets, and problems like that. Um, on the other hand, the Federal Reserve could blink, and they could say, "Okay, we have to stop doing quantitative tightening." Maybe they even have to do some new facility or quantitative easing, um, which if inflation is still above target um, or if you get a second wave of inflation uh, could be uh, obviously bad for for you know credibility. They, they would essentially become kind of like what the Bank of England had to do uh, last year or what the Bank of Japan's been doing. Um, they would enter that kind of 
sort of deficit monetization game, um, even if inflation's above target, which is not a good look. Okay. Okay. So if the banking system can't buy more long-duration bonds because their balance sheets aren't healthy enough, foreign buyers have not been buying long-duration bonds, so that's probably not an option. We could look at issuing an extensive amount of T-bills and suck the money out of the reverse repo market. Are there implications of sucking $1 trillion, $2 trillion out of the reverse repo market? Is there a downside to that scenario? And what happens to reverse repos if all the cash is sucked into T-bills? Is there an effect there? So the, the the amount of reverse repos is still at near record levels, and it's kind of unnatural. Like that, that's basically capital that um, th there's actually what that kind of is is like excess demand for T bills compared to how many T bills there are. Okay. Um, and it's funny because back in 2019 there was the opposite problem. During the repo spike, there was uh, too many T bills um, uh, relative to you know basically cash on hand to buy T bills. Uh, now you have an opposite problem where you have tons of people that want to buy T bills and it's just not enough T bills. Um, and so that reverse repo is kind of like this big queue. Uh, of entities that would want to buy T bills. So a lot of it's money markets, you know, people that say they want three, four, five percent yielding assets, short duration cash equivalents um, that don't have like bank default risk. Um, and so that that's that's kind of a big pool of, of capital that would like to own T bills. Um, and so there's really not that many ramifications, I think, from issuing a ton of T bills and pulling liquidity out of there. It's, it's one of the levers that the treasury market has. The the implications that are there are one that it's the most expensive part of the curve. So, you know, it's like if you were to choose between, say, having a, a short duration mortgage at 5% or a long duration mortgage at 3%, right? I, you pro probably want the 3%, um, but this is like picking the 5% instead, right? Yes. So that it's the treasury market saying, okay, we're going to finance ourselves with the most expensive part of the curve. And therefore, that'll increase deficits because you're paying even more interest now. Yeah. Um, so that, that's one implication. Um, and the second implication is just that it'd be it'd be very unusual activity from the treasury to like rapidly adjust their um, average duration. Uh, you know, they had to shorten their duration a little bit during the, like the COVID crash of 2020 when you had kind of weird things going on. Uh, but generally, um, they like to keep bond auction cadence kind of, you know, steady. Um, they don't yeah. really plan on changing their average duration. Um, and so it would kind of, it would be kind of like a treasury QE type of thing. And they've already actually announced um, buybacks, treasury buybacks, which is they're willing to buy back off the run securities and issue on the run securities. So basically the treasury market acknowledges that the treasury securities uh, market is very kind of a liquid and, and not in great working condition. And so they're, they can do various things to try to augment that and make it uh, liquid as possible. Even to some extent, the Federal Reserve's um, BTFP program that kind of helped some banks out, that also indirectly helps provide liquidity to the treasury mortgage-backed security market. And so there's a bunch of different facilities that are kind of either lined up or, or already in place to kind of keep the treasury market from, from having severe liquidity problems. Okay. And you know what? Just... Just for for clarity's sake, could you could you explain um, as simply as is possible? And what is the reverse repo market? Just to add clarity there, I realize we just spent you know seven minutes walking through that, and maybe just a simple explanation will be valuable to the viewers. So, what is as simply as you can put it? What is the reverse repo market? 
Right. So we can start with a repo. So repo is when uh, basically you can post collateral, uh, like say T-bills and get dollars. Um, and and so that was used, for example, during the repo spike of, of 2019. A reverse repo is, is the opposite of that, where you, you can post dollars and get, say, T-bills. Um, and so basically it's, it's like there's excess demand for, for dollars um, and there's plenty, you know, so, and well, there's excess demand for T bills, and there's plenty of dollars that can like go into that facility, and right. so that's why if they were to issue a bunch of T bills, you know, for example, money markets could hold T bills instead of having reverse repos, which is kind of like an indirect way of getting T bill like exposure. Um, and so it, it it's basically what these what repo and reverse repos facilities do from the Fed. What they share in common is that they try to increase fungibility between dollars and and T bills or other types of treasuries, um, and so you know some some of the big problems they run into is if they issue a ton of treasuries and there's like liquidity issues and there's not enough dollars to buy those treasuries, it can cause problems. Um, on the other hand, sometimes you have all this demand for collateral for for treasuries and you have excess dollars, and so what these facilities do is try to make dollars and treasuries kind of more interchangeable. Got it. Okay. All right. Now, if what other options does the Fed have here? Could they elect to just not replenish the Treasury general account yet? Like, could they keep that balance low? And and what are what vulnerabilities arise if they just choose? Look, the only way we can uh, raise cash right now is through super expensive debt via T bills. We don't want to do that. We can't afford those interest payments. How about we just don't replenish the uh, general account? What what happens there? And would they consider that? So the, the Secretary Yellen could could decide to do that. Um, it, it'd be the Treasury's decision. Um, now they've already every quarter they give their targets for um, where they expect their Treasury General account to be. Uh, but kind of like the Fed, they often don't hit their own targets, right? So the Federal Reserve will say we're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates, and then they raise rates by record speed. Uh, sometimes they say we're gonna we're gonna pause, and then they end up cutting. The Treasury General accounts kind of the same way, where they give targets on what they're going to do, but that's not super reliable for what they end up doing. Um, but yes, so one of the things the Treasury could do is slow down or or just pause their rate of refilling their their cash account back up to their targets, and they could just operate at this low cash uh, method. Um, that would probably delay or reduce the severity of some of these potential liquidity problems, um, but the you still have the problem where you almost go back to like the first half of 2022 where the Federal Reserve was doing quantitative tightening and the Treasury was not offsetting it. So you had this like, you know, big decline in liquidity. Um, if you go to an environment where the Treasury just holds its cash flat rather than decreasing it or increasing it, um, you, and the Federal Reserve still doing quantitative tightening, you'd actually still go back to a period of negative liquidity um, uh, because you, you no longer have that offset. So yeah. the treasury the treasury can kind of choose to be neutral or negative for liquidity here based on either holding the the cash account flat or increasing it. And the only um, kind of pro liquidity thing that they can do is shorten their treasury duration average and try to suck money out of reverse repos. But that would be considered an unusual activity. Okay, would could there be a strategy where they try to decrease the value of the dollar, making uh, bond issuance more attractive to foreign buyers, um, and would that make sense? Is that is that a direction they could consider? 
They could, yes. Um, uh, and, and so could the Fed. I mean, you know, if they want to have a weaker dollar, so generally, and to back up for the for the audience, we often think of that maybe treasury demand, foreign treasury demand and dollars indexes are correlated, but they're actually inversely correlated, which is what you're getting at there. So basically, um, when the dollar is weaker, there's more foreign demand for treasuries historically. Um, when the dollar has, is having one of those like big bull runs, um, usually you, you see either flat or reduced uh, demand, uh, foreign demand for treasuries. And that's often out of necessities because when the dollar is getting very strong, foreign central banks are basically defending their currency. Um, so they're saying, okay, we're gonna we're we're gonna um, you know hold our reserves flat, or even we're gonna sell reserves, sell treasuries uh, to kind of you know get dollars and maybe maybe backstop our own currencies. Maybe we'll buy back some of our own currency, um, or because we have a dollar shortage, we need to lend dollars to our own bank. So we'll tr we'll sell some of our treasuries to get dollars. Um, and so what, if they do want to entice more foreign demand, they can you know moderately weaken the dollar. But that also could have inflation um, implications. I mean, if they're if they're trying to fight inflation, um, you know, and they drop the dollar index by twenty percent or ten percent or whatever, um, that will probably translate into higher dollar denominated oil prices, um, and 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 just generally other higher kind of uh, import prices. Um, and so, but it is one of the tools that they have uh, certainly, uh, and that that's that's kind of the reprieve we saw starting in the autumn of twenty twenty two. The Treasury's big, um, you know, uh, TGA decline uh, was you know kind of temporarily negative for the dollar because uh, it was pro liquidity. Um, and there's also, you know, just probably other deals with central banks to to kind of, you know, work things out and, and kind of, you know, maybe weaken the dollar around the margins. Um, and so there, that's always a lever that they have available. Now, when we reflect back on the last 30 minutes of our conversation, it strikes me how complex and challenging this situation is to manage. And Frankly, what a mess it is. I mean, imagine if, you know, any of our personal balance sheets look like this, you know, um, how much of that picture do you think, if any, is inspiring the, the trend that we, we call Luke Roman's touch on the trend of de-dollarization through BRICS economies and now expanding beyond that? You know, is there uh, a lack of confidence that is rapidly accelerating in U.S. and non-U.S. friendly countries that is inspiring them to search for non-U.S. dollar options with which they can conduct business and hold their hold their uh, savings, essentially. Yeah, I think we could divide, like put, say, de-dollarization or at least, you know, we don't see like rapid de-dollarization, but we kind of see like no longer increasing dollarization um, over the yeah, past okay. number of years. And then, yeah. uh, you know, this past year, you've seen a little bit more acceleration in de-dollarization. Um, and there's, I think there's kind of two big underlying foundations for that. So number one is that ever since the global financial crisis um, and, you know, a few years after that, um, a number of countries decided they, you know, that basically treasuries are probably not going to be very attractive um, and they don't want to finance the U.S. government at negative real yields. Um, so, I mean, for, for much of the 2010s decade, for example, T-bills were yielding less than inflation. Yeah. Um, longer duration treasuries were yielding, um, you know, roughly in line with CPI. It kind of varied over time, um, and they were underperforming, you know, other assets like equities and real estate and things like that. And so, a lot of these governments said we don't really want to, you know, facilitate that. China, in particular, in 2013, said 
it's no longer in our interest to keep accumulating treasuries. Um, they, they just made to come out with a statement. And so what China's and China was a at the time in the prior decade, the biggest you know net buyer of treasuries. And so what China started to do instead, for example, is they started to use their dollar surpluses, their their dollar trade surpluses, instead of funneling them back into the US Treasury market, they started making loans. Um, say that, you know the Belt and Road Initiative. They started doing kind of like what the IMF and World Bank do um, on their own scale, where they go to countries in Africa or other countries in Asia or certain countries in Latin America or Eastern Europe, and they say, okay, we're going to provide dollar loans in order to build this you know railway or this commodity development or this refinery. Um, and so they, they they found that to be a better use of their dollars than plowing them back into treasuries. You had other central banks like, say, you know, the Swiss uh, National Bank um, plowed into U.S. equities um, rather than U.S. treasuries. Um, and you had other ones just, you know, the dollar was pretty strong, especially, you know, starting in 2014, 2015. And so many countries were just kind of not accumulating reserves and therefore just not accumulating much treasuries uh, in general. You also saw from the 1970s until around 2009, there was this like net reduction in, in central banks holding of gold. Um, kind of, it was like the slowly declining gold uh, stash. But starting in 20, uh, 2009, you had like a V-shaped recovery uh, where central banks began reaccumulating gold uh, on net. Um, and so they, they found that, you know, to potentially be a better, uh, you know, reserve asset for them. So that's number one is, is basically the unattractiveness of treasuries that don't keep up with inflation, which is an environment we've been in. The other one is... Basically, that the the treasury and the dollar market in general is a permission to ledger, so it's a ledger that you know you, you can be cut off from. Uh, your assets can be unilaterally seized, and you know obviously it's not done arbitrarily. But you know most countries around the world have had periods of time over the past say fifty years where they've not been in the good graces of Washington for one way or another. The severity can obviously differ. Sometimes it's like an outright war. Other times it's it's just you know various various agreements. Maybe the treasury doesn't want. India doing business with Russia, and India says, "Well, we're going to do business with Russia," and so India is not in the bad graces of Washington, but it's not maybe not the best graces of Washington. So, basically, a lot of countries are saying maybe we shouldn't have a hundred percent of our reserves. Maybe we shouldn't have eighty percent of our reserves in dollars and treasuries because a handful of people in D.C. can just snap their fingers and and seize those funds uh, or, or prevent us from accessing that whole ledger and making payments in dollars. And so there's a push um, by some countries to diversify their reserves. So either a couple of different types of fiat currencies uh, or gold, for example, um, and then also to diversify their payment systems. So instead of being so reliant on SWIFT and having so many payments basically go through New York, they want to have you know bridges between central banks and and things like that in order to facilitate more non-dollar trade so that they can have their payment systems shut off either. So both as protection for their savings and payments um, on a permission ledger, they want to have basically a, an assortment of other payment and savings mechanisms to choose from. And does does one kind of require the other? So you talked about uh, alternative payment systems like bridges between, you know, two central banks that no longer include uh, New York. They no longer no longer include the SWIFT system. And the more bridges like that that are built, um, it would therefore become easier for foreign nations to diversify their 
reserves because if the US dollar is not the absolute monopoly as a trade currency, then it doesn't have to be uh, the first choice for a reserve currency, correct? Like if there's more options to trade, then you feel a bit more freedom with your reserves. Is is that related? Do I? What do you think? Yeah, I think they'd have more freedom with their reserves. They also might be able to hold less reserves because um, like let's, you know, nobody exactly, for example, wants to hold a lot of Chinese bonds. Um, they don't want to have like, you know, 50% of their central bank reserves in, in Chinese assets. It's, 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 you know, got capital controls. It's not super attractive. But China, for example, is the largest trading partner with most countries in the world now. Over the past 20 years, they've surpassed the US uh, for most countries as their biggest trading partner. And so- you know, with let's say China and Brazil trade, Brazil um, sends a lot of commodities to China, and China sends a lot of electronics um, and and other other products to Brazil. And so, one thing they can do is just basically, you know, like one of them gets a temporary surplus and it gets plowed back into the goods of the other one. You have that that more circular payment system. It doesn't really need to use the dollar. And they both might hold some degree of each other's reserves uh, with excess reserves maybe going over into gold um, or something like that. Um, that. That's generally kind of a trend we're seeing. And so, you know, while I don't think you'll see massive reserves, you know, in these other types of countries, uh, I, I think we're slowly seeing a diversification of reserves. I mean, Chinese... Holdings of of Chinese um, you know assets uh, among global central banks uh, over the past say five years went from like virtually zero up to you know you started to see countries doing like you know three four five percent of their of their reserves in in that so it's a marginal change which then we also combine with you know gold um, increases you have a little bit less focus on American and European assets as reserves and a little bit more focus on bricks gold. That kind of thing. Okay, and so with in relation to the uh, the trend of central bankers accumulating gold, you, you pointed out that um, gold holdings hit absolute lows between 1970 and 2009, and then started trending upwards again. So, could you make the claim this is it's more of a gold story as well? Like, yes, some countries are diversifying away from U.S. dollars, or it's actually a, re a reversion to the mean in terms of um, gold holdings for central banks. Yeah, I view it like that. I mean, people, you know, people in the past when they, they talk about prior um, global reserve currencies, um, they act as though like there's just kind of like you know a different reserve currency over time, which is partially true. But you know, all those past ones were were basically just proxies for gold. I mean, right. central banks would hold gold. Sometimes they'd accept each other's you know payment ledgers and bonds and things like that as like gold proxies that are maybe more convenient and pay some interest. Um, Essentially, gold was at the center of the system, and since the you know 1970s, um, the treasury kind of replaced gold as a key part of of the system. Which is that you know instead of holding a gold proxy, all these central banks around the world will hold dollars and treasuries as usually their primary asset, um, and that kind of that system kind of reached its peak in the early 2000s. Um, and so I think we are starting to see a reversion to the mean where where gold is becoming, you know, a, a, a kind of regaining its its kind of centrality um, among at least some countries' reserves. 
Um, and other things too, like, you know, just basically loans to other countries that are kind of indirectly tied to hard assets, you know, like loans to, to make infrastructure or commodity deposits or refining stuff. Sometimes that comes with a caveat that if those loans are defaulted on, then the rights of those assets get transferred um, to the lender. Um, and so you, I, I think we're seeing a little bit more kind of hard asset, commodity, gold preference. The challenge, of course, is is one, those types of things are less liquid. Um, they can't be used for fast payments. And then also, um, you know, the, the advantage of self-custody gold is that a country actually holds it, whereas uh, a, a problem with those types of lending environments is if they're defaulted on, how do you enforce your property claims um, right. in another in another country? Okay. And it would be in China's best interest to continue pushing that trend forward. I mean, we touched on how any country has, many countries have been qualified as a bad actor from the perspective of the United States, therefore making them potentially eligible for sanctions, compromising the U.S. dollar reserves. Well, obviously, that's uh, that's a big incentive for China, who, as you mentioned, is now the world's biggest customer, right? They've got a lot of influence in that regard. Um, and maybe Russia as well as the world's largest commodity exporter. And you could say between these two powers, right, there's a lot of reasons they would want to inspire um, comparable nations to trend towards reserves outside of the US dollar. So therefore, we could probably expect this de-dollarization trend, if you want to call it that yet, um, to continue. Yeah, I think so. And I, mean, I think for a long time, the dollar is still going to be the largest currency uh, in reserve baskets, or at least, you know, uh, on an on an international scale. Uh, but I think it was, we're basically going to increasingly see a more multipolar world, uh, which I think also reflects the fact that global GDP has become more multipolar. So, for example, you know, when 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 Bretton Woods was was started, for example, um, the United States was, you know, the last last man standing after world war ii um they were over over 40 percent of global gdp they had the industrial base they had the gold um whereas as you've seen developed markets recover uh, and as you've seen the rise of china and india and and other countries back to some meaningful percentage of global gdp um the united states share of global gdp has gone down back to a, a somewhat more normal baseline um and when you look at so Ray Dalio, I don't, I don't always agree with him, but he, he, he quantifies things well, and he had his whole changing world order, um, kind of framework. And I think the most useful data set from that is he maps um, global empires on a number of metrics: so education, military, economy, reserve currency status, um, things like that. And what you generally see is that some of those metrics are leading indicators. So education, for example, uh, is one of the first things to to rise. And then starts falling before other things, whereas things like economy and military are kind of like coincident with the peak of that empire. And reserve currency is actually one of the most lagging things. So it, it doesn't actually start to really build momentum until the empire is kind of already really big. And then even as the empire is kind of past its prime in terms of, say, share of global power, um, the reserve currency takes a number of decades and, and it still is really hard to dislodge because it has all that existing network effect and momentum. And so the United States in many ways is kind of in that environment where among many metrics, we, we've already kind of passed our prime, uh, but our, our dollar system is still kind of near its prime. It, I think it's this lagging thing. And whereas like China, many metrics has become very large while its reserve currency status is still very tiny. 
Um, and so I, I think over time, we're going to see more of a reserve diversification, payment, payment channel diversification. And there's no world where China becomes what the U.S. was, you know, say over the past 50 years. Like it's not going to be a world where the entire, you know, international scene is like, you know, all kind of holding Chinese reserves uh, because one, China's not big enough. Uh, the demographics are not good. The capital controls are not good. But yes. from China's perspective. But from China's perspective, their main goal is to basically become as self-sovereign as possible. So they want to be less reliant on dollars as possible. They want to have as many connections with other countries with which they can pay in yuan um, and have these kind of, you know, their own payment terms. And the reason they are able to do that is because they're, you know, they're they're the largest trading partner with with. The majority of countries, uh, both many cases in terms of, of imports, so commodities especially, but then especially in terms of outputs. So selling electronics, um, software, um, infrastructure, um, all sorts of things like that to other countries. Okay. Okay. I love that. Thank you for that. That was uh, I'm learning a lot today, Lynn. This is good. <laughs> okay. I want to use this as a segue then to jump into a couple uh Couple of subjects. I want to talk about uh, perspective forecasts on gold, uh, Bitcoin. Love to touch on energy if you'd be so inclined. Let's start with gold because we've just been covering that as a reserve asset recently. Uh, so, given the last 15 minutes of our discussion, I may speculate that over the next decade, you know, you, you've got a bullish sentiment towards gold. Is that correct? Yes. Um, so, you know, I think the next three to six months, I don't really have an opinion on because if you get a sharp liquidity problem like we discussed in the first half of this interview, uh, that's it, it's often not great for gold while, while you have negative liquidity. Um, but if you were to get either the Treasury or the Fed to kind of blink and have to start kind of reliquifying market, that would be a, probably a pretty attractive environment for gold. And so, you know, I, I eventually think gold will kind of break out of this like, you know, kind of top that it's been it's been kind of bouncing along on i think will kind of break out into the you know multiple in well into the 2000s um i just don't really have a firm view on the timeline um and i think that it's it's largely driven by you know central bank reserve diversification um and the fact that it's still under allocated i mean if if institutions even want a few percent of of normal portfolios in gold um that would be a pretty big uh price driver so i i think it's in a pretty good shape globally. Uh, and then as far as energy is concerned, you know, it's been a little bit surprising with the past six months, how deep, it, how, how kind of how far it came down. Um, but I think the long term story is still great. Basically, you have, there's really no, not much marginal supply ready to come online. Uh, you know, kind of US shale um, is, while well, it's not going to collapse anytime soon, it's, that, that rate of change we've seen over the past decade is kind of behind us. Uh, there's not a lot of new marginal supply possible out of like, you know, OPEC plus. Um, and so I, I think we're in this more kind of steady state supply environment where you can get some new supply online, um, but but at pretty significant cost. Um, and that often with a lack. I mean, there's there's plenty of like, you know, deep sea drilling they can do. Um, there's plenty of these big projects, but these are often five, seven year plus projects. Um, and so they're only going to do that when they have a very firm view that they're going to make their money back. Um, and so I think the long-term story for energy is very good. And then I think importantly, even if energy chops along for a while, I think some of these producers are in good shape for it. They're, they're profitable at current levels. Um, even if oil goes down five or $10, they can still kind of maintain their dividends, maintain their 
kind of core profitability. Um, their balance sheets are in pretty good shape in aggregate. Uh, their valuations are not high. Um, and so I, I think that there's still a, probably a five to 10 year opportunity in a lot of these energy names. Um, I also think that energy transport um, is pretty attractive. Um, you know, some of the MLPs, for example, they were a lot of them were washed out in like 2015. They were like washed out again in, in 2020. Um, but now I think they have a really good foundation. Many of them are self-financing. So they're not it, reliant on issuing equity like they used to be. Um, and I, I think they're decent income plays that are in many cases kind of resilient to the, the price of energy. Okay. All right. And then jumping into any other commodities that you're looking at, um, you know, cause I, I read your letter, I know you've got decent exposure to the commodity sector. Uh, where, where in that food chain do you like to focus and where do you look for opportunity given, you know, our last discussion, your prediction, and just maybe for, uh, clarity, touch on your time horizon. I think it's the most important thing and it's often overlooked. We talk about where we might be allocating cash, what looks hot, what looks overpriced, et cetera. But a viewer might be thinking this through with the mindset of a trader and it's completely irrelevant information, right? And so I, I really appreciate how when we touched on gold, you're like, I don't know what's going to happen this quarter, but frankly, it doesn't matter because here's my five, 10 year outlook. Um, love to look at the commodity sector as well. And you can build energy into that because of how many conversations we have on the channel right now that focus on potential demand destruction over the next couple of years and how that may impact um, demand. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To the extent that we have a recession or liquidity crisis, that can be negative for demand. Um, when you look back at historical recessions, um, energy total energy consumption globally rarely goes down. Uh, it went down for a three-year period in the early 1980s. Um, that's when basically Volcker went on his like super hawkish kind of warpath, and it, especially Latin America got crushed. All their dollar-dominated debt got crushed. Uh, they basically had a lost decade for like oil consumption, um, and we're kind of like a depressionary environment for like a decade. Uh, so we kind of like in some ways killed like Latin America to kind of like get energy demand down so that more of it could go. United States and elsewhere. Uh, it's, it's kind of a ruthless game. Um, so there are periods like that. Another, the the other year was uh, 2009. You know, if you have a global financial crisis event of that scale, uh, we had a very marginal re reduction in global energy usage. Um, and then also 2020, of course, because of all the, the lockdowns. So, so really, you know, in the past 40 plus years, we've had five years where there was a marginal reduction in total energy consumption. Uh, and except for 2020, those were not very big either. Um, and so while it can certainly affect pricing on the margins, um, it's not as though you see big collapses. Um, and so the, the, the big price collapses come from a combination of, you know, kind of flat to down demand when you already brought a lot of new supply online, right? Yeah. Whereas in this current environment, we're still supply tight. Uh, and so while I do think that recessions and and demand destruction can you know it can push you down somewhat it can make it stagnant somewhat um i don't think you're say you're going to crash and then stay lower for five years right that that's like a different type of part of the cycle so that that's how i'd frame that as far as other other commodities i like i like copper and uranium um you know, uranium i mean many of others that cover the story basically it's, it's you know nuclear is one of the best energy sources and you know when you look at just kind of long-term production and consumption, I think that's a very bullish story. Um, copper, 
is if you look at the gold to copper ratio, or I should say the copper to gold ratio, it's very correlated with PMI, so purchasing managers index, which is like an, uh, measuring the acceleration and deceleration of an economy. And these are roughly three-year cycles. So you'll see like, you know, maybe a year and a half of like gold doing better than copper, another year and a half of copper doing better than gold. And that is very correlated with, with PMI. Um, and so over the, over the past, um, you know, 18 months, we've been in this declining PMI environment. Generally, gold's been a better place to be than copper. Um, again, the next three to six months, you know, whether or not we have a liquidity crisis, whether or not we have a recession. Um, so I'm not like aggressively buying copper right now. Um, but when you start, when you do start to see a firm kind of like, you know, PMI going back up, um, copper to gold going back up, um, I would once again become quite bullish on copper because the, you know the long term story is very constructive. That you know there's there's it takes a very long time to bring in a large new copper mine. Um, there's plenty of demand. I mean, even just the existing demand, like India, the amount of copper that India is going to need over the next ten years, um, even as as China probably flatlines in its its copper demand. Um, you know, uh, Indonesia, Nigeria, a lot of these kind of fast growing. Um, countries with better demographics are still going to be large copper consumers. And then when you add any degree of electrification, right? I, I think in general, the electrification theme is probably overdone uh, in terms of hype and in terms of expectations. Um, but to the extent that it does continue to happen, that's that's a copper intensive um, set of things. And then lastly, I mean, you know, in many ways, Bitcoin's a commodity. It's like a, a kind of an alternative monetary commodity. And the way I would frame that is it's basically... The world's most decentralized and immutable database. So, if you have this kind of like distributed cloud database that nobody can control, it's kind of nation state resistant, you can basically access this ledger anywhere in the world with an internet connection. And so, what that allows you to do, for example, is, you know, if you want portable money, right? Let's, let's say you're in Lebanon and currency blew up, you know, you can hold gold, which works, but let's say you want to bring a lot of value globally, right? And maybe, and maybe those countries will let you bring a lot of value out. Maybe you, they won't. But for example, you can't bring a lot of gold or cash through an airport. Uh, different countries will have restrictions on how much you can maybe just export your investments and, and just pull like, you know, six, seven figures of, of value from that country to another country if you were to move, right? There's all sorts of frictions there. One thing that Bitcoin does is, you know, by memorizing 12 words or having 12 words written down or having a little drive, um, you can bring an unlimited amount of value globally uh, and you can make global permissionless payments, um, you know, that settle in seconds or minutes, depending on exactly, you know, if you're using, say, a, a higher layer or the base layer. And so I, I think having some some percentage of net worth in Bitcoin um, is attractive. I think the network is going to likely continue to strengthen over the next decade. Um, and I think that it's still under allocated to in large part because it's still it's still poorly understood. So while you know, I don't think people should put their entire net worth in it, uh, I think it's a very useful asset to be un understand how it works and then you know probably to have some amount of value in it because that's basically the most portable uh, kind of self-sovereign money you can have. Whereas say gold is like the most indestructible money, but it's also kind of stuck in whatever country you own it in, uh, especially in, in large amounts or without relying on you know, centralized third parties. Okay. Uh, again, I just want to restate, I really appreciate how you focus on time horizon and your final comment on Bitcoin there was that you expect the network to continue to grow over the next decade. 
And I completely agree with that. You know, part of my thesis on Bitcoin, to be honest, and it's a it's a bet on demographics. It's a bet of the next generation um, and how they will think about money and currency and transactions. Right. And I think that's very bullish for uh, digital currencies. Um, OK, uh, are you reading anything interesting right now? Any book recommendations, Lynn, that you want to share with myself or my audience? I'd, I'd love anything if you've got anything front and center, top of mind. Uh, a new book just dropped called Principles of Economics by Saifedean uh, Amus. Um, I'd recommend that one. Um, and also, I'm actually working on a book myself. Uh, I just I, I finished it. Uh, it's currently being edited. And so hopefully by this autumn, it'll be out. It's about actually the, the past, present and future of money uh, through a changing uh, technological landscape. So people might find that interesting. Okay. I'll be looking up for that. That's That's exciting news. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. What a huge undertaking, authoring a book in addition to... It, it, yes, it's a lot of work. And even the editing and fact-checking and research assistance for it is a massive undertaking. So I have very smart people helping with that. Awesome. Okay. Well, that's that's exciting news. I love I love that. All right. I'll look out for that. I'll make sure we uh, share that link with my crew, my audience when it's live. Um, I also want to push people over to lynnalden.com. You know, there's, there's a ton of good stuff there. You can choose your tier of membership and subscription. But even starting with your six-week free newsletter, um, once again, I love the cadence and rhythm of a six-week newsletter because we can be so obsessed with super near-term, minute-by-minute daily headlines, which really, if you're an investor, especially a value investor, shouldn't really impact your thesis that much. I think most headlines are, are irrelevant by the next day. Um, and I think a six-week cadence is so great because it really allows me as a reader, Lynn, just by the way, to zoom out pay attention to what you're focusing on for that six week period. I find it invaluable. I never miss it. Um, and it's, I mean, you can start with the free six week publication. It's a no brainer. Um, it's one of my absolute never miss must reads for sure. So I want to thank you for producing that uh, every month and a half. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you. I try to, my, my mindset there is I write it as though it's a paid newsletter, um, but then I put it out there for free um, just to see, what's going on, what are the big picture things to focus on. So thank you. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.